Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, James 3. If you need a Bible, the guys have one. They're going to make their way down the aisle, so get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you that is already marked at James chapter 3. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We believe the Bible fully, cover to cover. We believe it is God's lamp and light for our lives. We want everybody to have a copy of it. And so please feel free to keep that Bible as our gift to you. We're continuing our series through the book of James. The title of the series is on the screen behind me, Real Faith, that is genuine, authentic faith. And we have noted several times in the series that the word that's translated faith in your New Testament is the same word that is sometimes translated belief. And so when we say real faith, we mean genuine belief. What we profess to believe needs to be authentic, real, genuine. And James offers in his five chapters in the letter of James a number of tests for that authenticity. And we have seen some of those. Our reaction to adverse circumstances in chapter 1 that God brings our way in order to accomplish a good purpose, to develop character and maturity within us. But also, a test James provides is our reaction to the Word of God. He tells us, beginning in verse 18, that we were of chapter 1, that we were given new life, we were given new birth, and that new birth was given according to verse 21 of chapter 1 by the word that was implanted in us. And therefore, it ought to be natural for us to be ready and eager to receive the teaching of the word. So chapter 1 and verse 19 says, be ready to hear, eager to listen, and slow to speak, and slow to anger. But not just listen, but do what it says. So in verse 22, famously, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. And James goes on to talk about the futility of being simply a hearer that does not put into practice what he or she hears. But then he warns about another danger, and that is the danger of putting things into practice, starting to do the more obvious things that the Word of God tells us to do, which is all good, but then mistaking that as the sum total of our relationship with God. Doing religious stuff to have a relationship with God is otherwise known as religion. And that's why chapter 1 and verse 26 says, If anyone considers himself religious, but does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he's deceived. And his religion is worthless. Verse 27 says that pure religion that God our Father accepts is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So God is saying that a relationship with me based upon real belief in me is more than just doing religious stuff. It goes much deeper than that. It's, it's how we speak. It's how we show compassion to others. It's how we keep ourselves clean from the world. And on that issue of how we speak, how we communicate, James has devoted now 12 verses in chapter 3 to that issue. And we have given two Sundays now, and this will be the third and final Sunday on these 12 verses, I promise. We are going to finish the outline that was inserted in your program. From James chapter 3, 
as he explains what he said back in chapter 1 and verse 26, that a tight rein on the tongue is evidence of real faith, real belief, a true relationship with God. The smaller your conception of God, the more you will focus on only the large things in life. Let me say that again. The smaller your conception of God, the more you will focus only on the large things in life. To reverse that, if the focus of your relationship with God is primarily on the so-called big issues, it's because you view Him as quite small. So many of us think that it's avoiding the big sins that's important because those are things that God really cares about. And we may have arrived at that false notion for an understandable reason. God, after all, gave ten commandments, all of which do focus on big, obvious issues, things like murder and stealing and lying. But you may recall that the first commandment is that you have no other gods before me, so that we are not to substitute anyone or anything for the place of God, including a God, small g, made in our own image a God of our own conception. And I'm convinced that many people conceive of God as trying to kind of multitask in heaven. And is he doing the very best he can to keep all the balls in the air as he juggles responsibility for keeping the universe intact. And so he cares about big things like wars and famines and hurricanes and who's in power over a given nation at any given time. He may even eke out time to focus briefly on big stuff in your life and in my life. So those are the occasions when we will call out to him. If I'm going in for surgery, or contemplating a career change, or considering engagement, or some other big decision. We think of God as one who cares about the extraordinary, but not the ordinary. Not the everyday, every minute details of our lives. And this is why we categorize and we focus on certain kinds of behavior, but then in turn ignore other presumably smaller stuff in our lives. And so I ask you, does God care about your demeanor already this morning? Does it matter to Him whether we awoke with an attitude of ingratitude for another day, not to mention the fact that it's the Lord's day? Does it matter to Him how I've interacted with my family while getting ready this morning at home and making the drive here? Does it matter to Him how I've interacted with others already at church this morning or whether I've bothered to do so at all? Will it matter to him whether and how you relate to others during our scheduled fellowship refreshment time following this, this hour? Does God care and have any focus on what I'm thinking about this very moment? Friends, there is an inverse relationship between the size of your conception of God 
and the size of the things on which you focus. The smaller your God, the more you'll focus on only the so-called large things. But God is too great to be only aware of the big stuff. And God is too good to be only concerned with the big stuff. The sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful Lord God who made you and this world and everything in it is fully aware of and fully engaged in the intimate details of your life. And the loving and gracious and faithful and merciful Savior God who is remaking you and all that is in this world. He loves you and what He has made too much. He cares far too much to ignore the seeming mundane moments of our lives down to the very words we speak. God cares too much for His own reputation to ignore the way we spend the vast majority of our waking hours. You see, God desires and God deserves every part of those that He has made. And so, yes, God sweats the small stuff. He is in the so-called little things, including the so-called little sins. And interestingly, those so-called little sins are actually the most powerful and foundational. Because sins of thought always precede sins of word. And sins of word, that is, articulated propositions, whether spoken or in our own minds, sins of word always precede sins of action. And God cares then about the details. As He is remaking us in the image of Jesus, He then cares about these foundational issues of how we think and what our attitudes are and what we say. The Bible describes God as a craftsman who's remaking you and me. And that's why the Bible tells us that we are God's workmanship, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We are God's, the Greek word is poema, God's poem, God's work of art, God's masterpiece, that God is fashioning. And so God is a craftsman of our lives, remaking us in the best craftsmen. Am I right? Sweat the details, don't they? And they give attention to the so-called small stuff. And this is why the Bible is much more than the Ten Commandments. It's why the Ten Commandments are actually tied to two all-encompassing other commandments. You all remember that Jesus was asked, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response was, You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. God cares about the little things because He desires and deserves every part of our allegiance. 
And the seemingly little things are what give rise to the so-called big ones. And those so-called little things include the way we communicate. That's why the Bible gives so much time. That's why I've been giving so much time to this issue of how we communicate, how we talk. And so the outline that's inserted in your program has seven points from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. We've covered three of those in the last two weeks. We will cover the next four now, more quickly today. And we have seen the responsibility of communication, that we need to be careful, those who would deign to instruct and counsel and teach others, because we will stand for more strict judgment, says James. There's the responsibility of communication. And there's the, the power of communication, likened to the bit in the mouth of a horse or the rudder that guides a ship. The way we speak has power associated with it. But because we are fallen creatures, sinful, the way we talk, the way we communicate is often perverse. And so we saw last week the perversity of communication. And now today, we're going to see four others that James tells us. The first for today is the, what I call the mastery of communication. The mastery of communication. And I remind you that I have in your outline the word communication rather than speech because communication is more than verbalizing. We don't always verbalize what we speak to ourselves and what we're thinking to ourselves. And so it's a broader term of communication. Further, in a day of technology, we can communicate words in ways other than by speech. And so James' principles here covers all of that. And in verses 7 and 8, he speaks of the mastery of communication. He says, All kinds of animals, verse 7, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Now when in verse 7 he says animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. He's going all the way back to the very beginning of human existence, the beginning of your Bible, creation, where God gave to the man a mandate to rule over, to have dominion over the rest of creation, including the animal creation. And so animal life was ruled by man, and at that time animal life was in harmony with man. Now that's not the world that we now know, but it will be in the future kingdom, which will involve a restoration to God's original design. So the first few chapters of your Bible don't tell you a whole lot about man's interaction with the animal kingdom. But in the prophets, those in the first part of your Bible who are predicting what's going to happen in the future, they tell us of a coming kingdom. And that kingdom is going to restore things to the original order. And so you have prophets like Isaiah saying things like this. At that time in the future kingdom, the wolf will live with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. So notice, no hostility 
among the animals and no hostility from the animals toward humanity such that a little child can safely lead them. And the infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's why the poet John Milton spoke of a a paradise lost. But then he also spoke of a paradise one day to be regained. And Isaiah speaks of that for us. But in the interim, the original design for God's creation and the interaction between humanity and the animal kingdom and the future restoration of that paradise, in the interim we live in a fallen world where things have changed, changed dramatically, such that animals and humans are at odds and animals are to be tamed by man. That's why Alfred Lord Tennyson said, Nature is red, that is bloody, in both tooth and claw. Now, I have found that my dog owner friends think that we are in the kingdom now because every dog owner has a dog that doesn't bite. Every dog owner I've ever known says, oh, he or she won't bite. Now, one wonders how dog bites ever occur, given the millions of non-biting dogs that are out there. The truth of the matter is, as a dog owner, you love your dog. Your dog perhaps has never bitten you. You've never seen your dog bite anybody, so your dog doesn't bite. But hear this. They can and they do bite. And we can subdue them. And we do. With leashes and little houses and tranquilizers. I can think of all sorts of ways that I won't share with my dog owner friends. And so James is saying here that's the way it is in the animal kingdom. That animals are indeed tamed, have been, and are tamed. But then he says, no one can tame the tongue. The mastery of the tongue is that it is not controlled by us. But rather, it controls us. Because it exposes, it reveals our controlling desires. And that's why verse 8 says, no man can tame the tongue. Man was in control of animals and of himself in creation, but after the fall, after the entrance of sin into God's otherwise good world, he can still control the animals, but he cannot control the tongue. And so one commentator says, looking back into the past, there are very many deeds we would like to go back and leave undone. But they are vastly outnumbered by the words we would now wish unsaid. This is not always the hasty, angry word either, but often the pondered word. The word meant kindly, but all of them, whether hostile or with loving intent, now seen as the unpredictable outbreaking of what James calls the restless tongue. How many of you are like me when after you've been with a group of people as you're driving home or after you get home 
you're rehearsing what you said. And the reason we do that is because we know how capable we are of saying hurtful or otherwise innocent but wrong things. So just, just last night, I'm coming back from our hayride. And I'm rehearsing the conversations that I had with several of you. And I'm thinking about some of the things I said and some of the quips that I tried to make to be funny and how stupid they really were. And perhaps while they could have been taken the the wrong way and, and so on. Well, that's because the tongue is always at the ready, but uncontrolled. And James says, no man can tame it. Now, we will come back to that at the end of our time together. But James tells us of the mastery of communication and the fact that most often we are mastered by it rather than the other way around. And then fifthly in your outline, James tells us of the inconsistency of communication in verses 8 through 10. The inconsistency of communication. At the end of verse 8, it, the tongue, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. James is saying there's an inconsistency in the way that we communicate. And since real, authentic, genuine belief is James' goal, he's quite concerned about a lack of thorough authenticity in any area of our character. And so we go back to James chapter 1 and verses 6 through 8. And you remember there, James, in verse 5, he talks about the one who lacks wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. But then goes on to speak of the man who wavers in his faith, wavers in his belief, and he calls him double-minded and unstable in verse 8 of chapter 1. And it's the same thought here now with regard to the tongue, that the tongue is used in dual and contradictory ways that are inconsistent with the character that we're to display as children of our Father. And so verse 9 says, with the tongue and with it, And so it's showing that the same instrument is being used for different and yet inconsistent ends. Praising our Lord and Father and yet cursing others. And so here you see the incomplete religion of chapter 1 and verse 26 that I was talking about. We can praise our Lord and Father. We can worship God. We can do religious stuff. We can show up on Sunday morning on the Lord's Day and go through all of the routine and fail to keep a tight rein on our tongue. When we speak ill, speak down, disparagingly, curse others made in the image of that very God that we've come together to worship. If you praise Jesus, then why speak negatively of others who are made in his image? And all the more of those remade and being remade in God's image. Remember what the Bible says about Jesus and our relationship to him. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. So... 
we would not speak ill of Jesus. Therefore, we should not speak ill of those who are made in the image of Jesus and who are Jesus' brothers and in Jesus' family. And when James speaks about cursing, it's not curse words necessarily as we would think of it, but rather the opposite of praising, the opposite of ascribing good and and positive things to another. And so we look around at our brothers and sisters, whether brothers and sisters simply in the human family or brothers and sisters in the spiritual family of God. And all too often we think nothing of defaming, denigrating, criticizing, making the sly innuendo. And yet James reminds us that they bear the image of the God who we worship with that same mouth. This should not be, says James at the end of verse 10. And uses a word translated, this should not be, a word meaning it's not consistent with the purpose for which this communicating ability has been given. It's not what our communication skills given by God were intended for. And so one way to avoid this, one way to avoid, on the one hand, we're Christians and we praise God and we show up on Sunday and we do that with our mouths, and then we use that same mouth to denigrate those made in the image of God, One way to avoid that is to constantly remember about whom we speak. And that's why in verse 10, James reminds, My brothers, this should not be. You're my brothers to whom I am writing. And these are my brothers and sisters about whom I am speaking. And therefore, we should always remember that relationship. That's why several times in these five chapters of the letter from James, he speaks to his readers as brothers. Chapter 1 and verse 2 and verse 16 and verse 19. And chapter 2 and verse 1 and verse 14. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 4 and verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 7, 9, 10, 12, 19. And we had an opportunity to just sing this morning beneath the cross of Jesus. One of the lyrics in that song asks, how could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? And so one way to avoid this inconsistent use of our mouths, praising God on the one hand and then denigrating our brothers and sisters is to remember indeed who they are and who we are. So James tells us of the mastery of communication the inconsistency of communication. And sixthly, in verse 11, the effects of communication. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? And the anticipated answer is, of course, no. Now, what's James getting at there? And we'll see what he's getting at with another illustration in verse 12. But what he's telling us is that it's the negative and not the positive things we say that will be remembered and felt, no matter the percentage of the one versus the other. He's saying that the tongue's pollution, rather than its sweetness, is what prevails. 
And so one commentator explains it this way. Suppose you have two separate sources of water flowed together into the same pipe. One sweet water, the other spoiled and unpalatable in some way. We would never know of the double source because the bitter flavor would prevail. And that is what would prove to be the stronger element. That is what would leave its mark. And so the tongue needs guarding lest it leave a bitter taste behind wherever it makes itself felt. Have you all ever experienced this? I'm sure you have. You can say to somebody 99 positive things. If you've you've ever been a manager and you've had to sit down and give a job review to someone, and you can say 99 positive things about their job performance, there's this one thing I'd like you to work on, and that one thing will crush that person. Or you haven't been the manager, you are that person. And you're receiving that one criticism or those two criticisms in the context of an avalanche of praise, and it's those one or two things. Really, they've been thinking that about me all this time? I can't do anything right. And that's what James is telling us here. It's the bitterness, it's the negative that prevails. And therefore, we must be extremely careful in what we say and the context in which we say it. So James has told us of the mastery of communication and the inconsistency of communication and the effect of communication. And lastly, in verse 12, he reminds us of the source of communication, the source. He asks, my brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Again, the anticipated answer is, of course, no, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now, this is different from the illustration in verse 11. One was about what comes out, and now it's from where it comes, where it comes from. And so James is stating what we all know, that plants bear fruit according to their kind. God in creation made it that way. And so whatever the root is will determine the fruit that is born. And that applies as well now to the way we talk, what comes out of our mouths, the fruit of our communication. It's attached to a root, And Jesus has told us what that root is. Jesus said in Luke 6, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For because out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So what is the source of our communication? Jesus says very clearly it's the heart. James heard Jesus say this, his half-brother. And James, based upon that same teaching, believing that very same teaching, says a salt spring cannot produce fresh water. Because hear this, friends, in biblical anatomy, the tongue is attached to the heart. In the Bible's anatomy, the tongue is attached to our hearts. The problem is this, the source, our hearts. 
And so how can that be dealt with? Given the fact that we've seen in verse 8 of chapter 3, James said, no one can tame the tongue. And now James is reminding us of what Jesus said, that the source of the problem is the ultimate problem, and that is our hearts. So I've got this heart problem, and I've got this mouth that he's acknowledged cannot be tamed. So where's the hope? What do we do? The Bible tells us the heart is deceitful. Above all things, and notice, beyond cure. (laughs) Well, thanks for the help. The problem is my heart, and yet the Bible says your heart is beyond cure. Who can understand it? The Bible goes on to speak of the impossibility of us changing ourselves. Can the leopard change its spots? Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. So I've got a heart that is the source of my communication problems, but it's a heart that the Bible makes very clear I cannot change. And I've got a mouth, I've got a tongue that the Bible says very clearly in verse 8 of James 3, cannot be tamed. So what can be done? This is important, friends. If you look back at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 3, When we're told all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. Now notice, have been tamed by by human nature. That humans in their own capacity can do this. They can tame animals. But then verse 8 when it says, no man, no mere human can tame the tongue. And this is wherein we find the hope. It's not that the tongue cannot be tamed. It's that you can't tame it. And I can't tame it. But thanks be to God, someone else can. You cannot change your spots. You cannot give yourself a new heart. But thanks be to God, someone else can. And that's why the Scriptures say, our God says, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so you can't tame the tongue. You can't change your heart. But our good God can. The God who cares about the small stuff and sweats the small stuff. Now how does he do that? He gives you a new nature. You were born with this untamable nature, this heart that from which emanates evil, as was I. We were all born naturally that way, and that's why the Bible speaks of being born from above, born again. So we have our natural birth that creates the situation where we have an untamable tongue, and we have an evil heart. But God says, I will give you a new nature, I will give you a new birth from above. And the question is, how does that happen? And the Bible says, to those who received him. And who are those who received him? John, who wrote this, goes on to explain what it means to receive him. It is those who believed in his name. So those who received him, that word received is welcome, accept. Those who welcomed, accepted him, are those who have believed in his name. 
And it is to those that he gave the right to become the children of God. And so these are children now who are born anew by God, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but children who are born of God. We are changed when we believe in his name. Now, in our remaining time, I remind you of his name. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his name represents some very important things that must be believed about who he is and what he has done. And so what are those? He is the Christ. Christ is, as most of you know, his title, not his last name. So Jesus Christ, his name is Jesus, the Christ. And Christ means the anointed one. It is the New Testament equivalent to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament's Mashiach or Messiah, the anointed one. And so the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, predicted one who would come anointed by God, his chosen vessel to, to carry out God's work. And so first of all, he's the Christ. He is the anointed one. But he is not just the anointed one, but this anointed one according to the Bible. This anointed one is one who is God himself, God with us. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says, You will call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted, says Matthew 1.23, is God with us. And so he's the anointed one, and this anointed one is predicted to be God having come as man. So when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are acknowledging that he is God having come in the flesh. And he's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus. The angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, you will name the child Jesus. Here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name, his human name, Jesus means God saves, Yahweh saves, Jehovah saves. And so we believe in his name. He is God, having come as man, the anointed one, the Christ. He is the one who has come to save his people, deliver them, rescue them from their sins by paying the penalty on the cross, living the life that we should have lived. Jesus did what we should have done, and he offers that to be applied to you when you believe in his name. He's Jesus Christ. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is not just fire insurance. He is not just, I believe there was a guy named Jesus who died on the cross. The word Lord means master. He's your master, and you give him your life, and you follow him. And that's why the Bible says, he who calls upon the name of what? Of the Lord will be saved. So you can't change your heart. God can. You can't tame your tongue. God can. And when you come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, He changes you from the inside out. He gives you God the Holy Spirit to take up residence in a special relationship with you. 
such that the fruit of the Spirit now becomes true of you. Not the fruit that James has now talked about. Not the fruit that Luke chapter 6, Jesus spoke about. But now the fruit of God the Spirit, which includes love and joy and peace and gentleness and last but not least in the list, self-control. That comes from God to you. Now we're going to bow in just a moment. And I invite all of you who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ to thank Him for His work, but also to confess to Him that still this side of glory, still this side of heaven, we still bear the vestiges of residual sin in our lives. And we see that in the way we speak. Oh, Lord, forgive us and help us to do what we can't do ourselves, to tame our tongue, to express a heart that is like Christ. Those of you that have never come to God through Jesus Christ, He offers you that opportunity right now. Acknowledge you can't do it. Acknowledge you cannot deliver yourself. You cannot save yourself. You can't change your own heart. You can't tame your own tongue. Jesus has done what's necessary for you, and He offers that gift to you. So when we bow now, in just a moment, you say to God from your heart, just silently, from God to your heart, Lord, I recognize I'm a sinner. In your own words, I'm a sinner. I can't do anything to rescue myself. But I believe Jesus Christ has done all that is necessary for me to have a relationship with you. I give my life to you. I want to follow you. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this time to look into the pages of your word And to see there that you care all too much. To let all of the moments and minutes and hours of our days where we spend most of our time go by without care, without refinement, without using those moments for moments of ministry rather than moments of anger. And to to change us into the image of Jesus daily as we are renewed day by day. And so we thank you that you love us that much to, yes, accept us as we are, but not leave us where we were. So thank you for your ongoing work in the lives of your children. Thank you for your work in my life, O Lord God. I need your work every moment of every day. Apart from your work, I would be completely, completely lost. And so I thank you for saving me from the penalty of sin. I thank you for the process of saving me, delivering me from the power of sin as evidenced in so many ways, including the way I talk. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters here whom you have likewise delivered and rescued from the penalty and are delivering and rescuing from the power of sin. And I pray for any here who came into this room without a relationship with you, that they are receiving the free gift of grace that is being offered to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that from their heart to you, they are crying out for their need, their deepest need, a relationship with you, forgiveness of their sin, and becoming a new creation. And Lord, we pray that you will then take lips of all of us that were made to praise you and to spread your fame, but have become lips that defame and curse and denigrate. Take those lips change them so that they are used for your glory, the purpose for which we were made. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.